conclusion of Ephesians. I'm going to welcome up Graham McKay. Thanks, Adam. That's quite the intro, the thrilling conclusion. All right, hopefully it will be. No, it is. promise. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? It feels kind of mellow in here this morning. People, people are like, it's the middle of summer. It's really hot. All right. That's fine. Well, I, uh, it's good. You like mellow? All right. Well, I want to, um, just kind of recap where we've been in Ephesians, um, over the last couple of weeks, because this week is the final week. Uh, we're looking, um, at Ephesians at this, uh, letter that the Apostle Paul, um, has written. Um, first of all, to the Christian believers in the city of Ephesus, and then also to um, to each of us as we pick up um, God's word and as we read this letter and as we try to understand what it meant first to those New Testament believers, to those Christians in the city of Ephesus, and then we think about how does that then apply uh, to our lives. And one of the things that we've really kind of focused in on as like a major kind of overarching theme as a way to read um, Ephesians, as to a way to understand this this letter, is also to think of it as a drama, to think of it as a story that is being told, that involves characters, and involves um, a plot, and involves a story that's being told. And so, um, last week we spent a lot of time thinking about some of those characters, and we thought about Paul as a character. He likes to write himself into a lot of his writings. He likes to use himself as an example uh, of somebody to follow, somebody to imitate. He's not afraid to say, uh, look at me and how, how I'm living the Christian life, and this is a good example for you to follow. And um, that sometimes can seem a little maybe arrogant to us, but Paul was, I think, doing it in all sincerity and, sincerity and saying, you know, I, and you even see this in Ephesians where he says, I honestly feel like I'm the least among you. I'm the least um, when it comes to being a Christian. And that's why you should um, follow my example. So um, sometimes we read that and we think that's a little strange. But Paul likes to write himself in as a character in his in his writings. We also saw that the uh, the Ephesians themselves were characters. We saw that the Jews, the Gentiles were characters. And also um, that we are characters. We are being called into this story, into this drama. But we also saw that, um, you know, aside from Christ, aside from the Father, aside from the Spirit, that there were other um, characters in this drama that were not earthly characters, that were not, you know, kind of flesh and blood characters that we can relate to in that sense. But they were the spirits, um, the powers, the authorities in the heavenly realms. And so last week we spent a long time kind of thinking about what does that look like? What do these um, heavenly rulers, um, what do these powers and authorities, who are they? You know, what are they like? And we spent quite a bit of time thinking about that because without really understanding who they are, it's really hard to get a full picture of what this um, drama of Ephesians and what this letter of Ephesians is all about. And we're going to see, again, even as Paul goes through the material in the second half of Ephesians, which is what we're looking at this morning, um, the material that's in chapters 4, 5, and 6, even when we look at that material, if we don't understand who the powers and authorities are, then it, it really is hard to, to grasp fully what, what Paul is saying. And we looked at the powers and authorities and their you know, they're um, these heavenly, heavenly creatures that are kind of referenced at various times throughout the Bible. And in some ways, there's not a ton of really clear, explicit, these, this is who they are. But they're mentioned enough times in enough places and, um, and talked about in, 
in enough clarity that we know that they're they exist in the world um, to to uh, help shape and influence um, societies, culture, and a nation, not at simply the individual personal level, but in terms of like, uh, you know, just the culture in general and more the corporate level and more of just bigger picture. And so we looked at um, how they kind of present themselves a little bit in scripture and how Paul makes reference to them over and over again in different parts of his writings. And so um, this week as we finish up, we're going to see how does, how does the triumph of God, this main you know, drama, this main story that's being told in Ephesians, how does that really work itself out in, in the individual lives of Christians? And Paul starts to give some sense of that to, his, um, to the church that he writes to in Ephesus in this letter to Ephesians. He starts to give them some more clear examples of what does it look like. You know, we see early in the letter of Ephesians that God triumphs. You see that in you know, chapter 2 where you, you see the whole idea of God overcomes sin. He overcomes sin in our lives, the destruction and the, and the path that we were on that kind of challenged the rule of God. You know, God comes in and overcomes and he wins a victory. He wins a victory in our lives, but he wins a victory over, you know, sin and death and hell throughout all of what he has created. And that victory is being lived out. That is the triumph of God. And Paul um, starts to address how do we live out the triumph of God? And, you know, we kind of follow the same pattern as the Ephesians would have most likely as they read this letter for the first time. So, okay, they get that Christ is seated above all of their power and authority, that he's been raised from the dead by the power of God and they get that you know they've been they've been saved by grace and not by works and they understand the victory and the triumph um, of God and they start to understand all of that but then the next question is naturally well what does that mean for us as Christians how do we live out how do we understand you know this triumph of God this victory of God in our lives and so the second half of Ephesians starts to get very um, practical in some ways where where Paul starts to give examples of what the triumph of God looks like he starts to give examples of this is how you would live it out and so this morning as we turn to those parts of um, Ephesians, that's what it's really going to focus on. It's going to become a lot more practical. It's going to become a lot more, this is how you would live this out. In saying that, though, one of the themes that will come across is um, there's no one magic answer in some ways. There's no one-size-fits-all answer. It's probably a better way to say it. And for each of us, we're each called to play our part in this drama of God. And there's an interesting balance that happens where on the one hand, as a church, we're called to live out the, the triumph of God. As a church, we're called to live out the victory of Christ in the world. But then at the individual level, we're also called to live it out. And so for each of us individually, it'll look a little different. For each of us individually, we'll be called into different areas of life and different ways to um, influence this world and different ways to come against the influence of the powers and authorities that we read about in Paul. And I'm going to present a couple of different ways that Paul talks about this triumph of God in the second half of Ephesians. And um, one thing I want to start with is emphasizing the importance of our minds being transformed. And that for Paul is a huge um, point in Ephesians. In Ephesians, it comes up a number of times that our minds need to be transformed. I think often we hear a lot about our hearts need to be transformed, and that's really true. But Paul comes from this Old Testament background where the Hebrew word for heart and mind is exactly the same. So whenever you read in the Old Testament about the heart or the mind, most often the translators have kind of made a decision. I think it's more heart than mind because for us, we need a distinction. We need to know, is it heart or is it mind? Because that matters for us. 
in English and, and the way our language has developed. But in the Old Testament, heart and mind was the same thing. It was all wrapped up together. You know, what you believed influenced, you know, how you felt about things, what you chose to do, what your will was in life. And the same way, what you were, uh, what you chose to do and what, what things that you went after affected the decisions that you made. And so I think on some level we know that those things are really true, that it's all bound up together. But for us, we also have a sense where we can, because of our language and our culture, kind of separate this idea of heart and mind. Well, what Paul is saying is our minds need to be renewed. And so just as our hearts need to be renewed, our minds need to be renewed. And he talks about that a number of times in this letter. So let's look at a few of those occasions where Paul talks about this. So in, it comes in really early. And again, this prayer that we um, prayed together the first week um, from chapter 1 keeps coming back around to setting a major theme for this letter. Ephesians 1, 17 to 19. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So you see right there he says, he asks that the Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So wisdom and revelation. And we know from various teachings at New Day that, you know, wisdom comes into the mind, revelation comes to the heart. And so Paul is addressing both parts. But wisdom is part of what, what Paul is really going to focus on in this letter, that we may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. In chapter 2, so just a few verses later, um, he starts off, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. So what Paul is saying here is, as Christians, we have come into this place where our minds are being renewed, where we have been made new, and that's in contrast to the place that we formerly were. That's in contrast to the way that we used to live. And the way we used to live, not only did we have desires to follow after the flesh, desires to follow after worldly things, desires to sin, we also had thoughts that lined up that way too, where we had thoughts of sinning, where we had thoughts of disobedience towards God, where we had thoughts against our fellow um, people that we would meet and come up against. You know, we would think evil. We would choose evil based on the thoughts that we had had. And Paul's saying this is just the pattern of life before we were Christians. Not only would we have these desires in our heart to do evil, we would also think evil thoughts as well. We would just be in that pattern of life. And so a lot of what Paul is saying is in contrast to how we used to live. We now live as Christians with minds that are renewed. A little later in Ephesians 3 chapter 20, Paul says, Not to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us, to him be glory. So this whole thing of imagining, using our minds, is a really big theme. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Ephesians 4, um, it continues on. Um, Paul talks about um, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and, and the work that they do in the church to build us up so that we reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature, 
and attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So we're, we're somewhat familiar with that passage where we're being equipped as a church into the fullness of Christ and becoming mature. Well, what does the fullness of Christ and becoming mature look like? Well, in the very next verse in 14, he begins to explain what that maturity looks like. He said, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Okay, so Paul's saying there's a huge part of Christian maturity that comes with understanding who God is, understanding what it is to be Christian, so that we can, you know, receive, you know, words of teaching and instruction from people and we can begin to discern and have discernment. And so he paints two different pictures. One is we will mature so that we're no longer like infants that we're no longer like infants. So we, we know what that's like as you mature through stages of life and you, you develop. You grow out of a childlikeness that kind of has foolishness built up with it and makes wrong choices. And you begin to mature and make wise choices. It's the same in the Christian life. And then also this idea of being tossed back and forth, blown around in the wind, where it's like you say, oh yeah, this idea sounds really great, until the next idea comes along and you say, oh no, this idea is really great. And so this whole idea of where there's stability in your life, and I think we know what that's like at certain parts in the Christian life. You're like, oh yeah, this idea is right, and oh no, this idea is right. But then there comes a time when you kind of become a bit more settled yourself because you have read scripture, you've heard teaching, you're with a community of believers, and you kind of are able to settle in. So no, this is what I believe. And you begin to really understand and come to a deeper place. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Um, Ephesians 4.17, he goes on, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So again, really emphasizing the futility of thinking that happens in the mind when you are not a believer. And then a little bit later on to finish in 4, verses 20 to 24. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus you were taught with regards to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness so again you see in those verses this emphasis on the mind being renewed and thoughts being renewed and there's one part of that that I really want to kind of focus on a little bit more deeply this morning and that's the whole idea of our imaginations being renewed and we're all familiar with our imagination that part of us that you know as children would make up imaginary worlds imaginary friends sometimes you know would take the very very ordinary and mundane things of the world and make them extraordinary would kind of create just this these other places that we would go in our minds and would just make just really boring things really exciting. You know, it's the part of your world that makes uh, forts out of furniture in the living room and, you know, just that whole part of life, that whole part of your mind. Well, I think as adults, we kind of, culture teaches us to kind of grow out of that. Like, you know, you get to reach a certain age and you should just grow out of using your imagination because there's a lot more practical things that we need to do with our lives. There's a lot more practical concerns we should be worried about. But I think the reality is that as adults, we do use our imaginations, but we just use them a little differently. And I think we use them more on the lines of, you know, what if I get fired? And you start to imagine what that would be like. Or what if I don't find a job? And you start to imagine what that would look like. You know, what if, 
this or that happens. And we begin to get really good at imagining all the what-ifs in life. And you start to use your imagination to kind of map out all of these things that could happen, either good or bad. Um, but often bad, it seems like, where you're like, I really hope that this doesn't happen or that doesn't happen. And some of us are, are better maybe at more quickly shutting that down and saying, no, I shouldn't, I shouldn't think about that. Like I should, I should trust God and I should really believe for what he has for me. But for some of us, it's really hard to turn that part of our lives off, to, to turn that part of our minds off. And using our imaginations is a big part of our world. It really shapes how we see ourselves. It shapes how we see the world around us. You know, some of us, when we look to the future, and you say, imagine what the future, what will this country look like in 50 years? And some of us will have this vision of, of the states in 50 years that will be exciting, that will be vibrant, that will be great. And others of us will imagine and say, no, I, I don't think that's going to happen at all. And even just thinking those ways shapes your present. Because what are you working towards? What are you imagining? What, what are you investing your life into that your imagination is helping to fuel? And I think last week we saw a little bit of how, you know, for us as Christians, our lives are, are in some ways marked by this idea. And what Ephesians really teaches us is this whole idea of spiritual struggle. And our imaginations are part of this, this spiritual struggle that we're in. And our imaginations are not some kind of neutral ground that just exists and we, and we go around in our everyday life and our imaginations are just kind of this neutral territory. But our imaginations are being actively shaped every day. Our imaginations are being actively shaped every day. And I think the clearest way we see this is maybe through advertising, where it seems like every year there's like new ways for advertisers to reach us, right? Especially with the internet and online, there's just all these different ways for, for advertisers to reach us. And advertising speaks to your imagination. It speaks to this is the type of person you should be. If you buy this product or buy this service, you will become this type of person. And that means you will be a better person. And imagination is really something that is, is triggered, that is used in advertising. You know, advertising is great at helping you imagine things that you never knew you needed to think about before, you know. And, and advertisers love to come up with that. Like, I never knew I needed to do this. Oh, now I need to do that. Now I need to buy this product. I need to have this wild experience, you know. It's not enough anymore to do this. Next year, I'm going to have to go on vacation to this other place because that seems to be the new place that everyone goes. And advertising is always targeting our imaginations, getting us to imagine what life would be like if we bought this product or if we had this experience. And one thing it does is tells us a couple of, of subtle messages that sometimes even aren't that subtle. One is it teaches us uh, who we should become, who we should be. So advertising is telling us who we should be, what type of people we should be, how we should look, how we should dress, the places we should go. It's giving us a set of values by which we should live our lives. And it, it reaches us at the level of our imaginations. I imagine what life would be like if I, if I looked like this, if I went to these places, if I had these types of friends. And it strikes it at that part of us. The other thing that advertising does is tells us your only true value comes when you're a consumer. Your only true value comes when you're a consumer. And that's in stark contrast to the Christian life where we weren't created to be consumers. We were created to be those who created. We were created to be creators after the image of our Father. 
who is a creator. And what, what advertising does and, and a lot of what our culture says is your value comes when you consume. You know, one of the big things with our economy is right now is people aren't spending money because people are saving. And that drives people nuts who kind of like to oversee and run, run our society because they're saying people's values have changed where they see that saving money is more important. And that's difficult for some people, you know, because they're saying, I thought my value was in consuming and in buying and in reaching these new, new levels because I buy all the time. But to save, that's really different. And it changes who you think about, what you think about, and who, how you value yourself. So Paul talks about the renewed imagination is really key. When it comes to living out the victory of God, why it's so important is Paul is, is saying to the Ephesians and saying to us, a huge part of living out the triumph of God is using your imagination in a godly way, is using your imagination in a way that is renewed. And what that looks like is imagining what the triumph of God would look like in the areas that you have influence in your life. It's what does the triumph of God look like in my life? What does it look like? And often we say, God, I wish you would tell me what, what, you know, just make it really clear what your will is for my life. Would you just tell me, you know, what the next step is and make it so clear, so clear that I almost don't need to have faith for it? Would you make it so clear where it's without a shadow of a doubt going to be a success or it's just going to work out? And I think that in some ways the will of God is tremendously clear for us in the Bible. And it's not so much what we should do as who, sh- who we should become. And the Bible says over and over again, and you find it in, throughout Ephesians 2, especially in this, this second half of Ephesians, where Paul says you're supposed to grow up to be like Christ. When you grow up, you're supposed to be like Christ. That's, that's God's will for our lives individually and as a church, that we grow up to the fullness, to the full measure of what it is to be in Christ. And part of, part of that is obviously working, is, is doing things, is, and all of that part of life, and that's a hugely important part of life. The places we should live, the friends we have, the interactions we have with people. But I think, too, there's a part where the imagination helps to shape all of those things where we say, God, what do you want me to do? And God says, what do you want to do? I've given you an imagination. When you, you know, when you imagine a better world, what types of things drive you crazy? What types of things really like make your heart ache? Like what types of things really cause you to stress about society and about the world we live in? What are those things? And then you start to dream about and imagine what would life look like if it was different? Like how would, how would you, that change? How would you make a difference? And we know that like all great ideas come from imagination, right? Whether it's, you know, helping somebody across the street or whether it's coming up with the, a new idea, it starts in the imagination where there's something about life that is seen by somebody and it's like, you know what? We could do better than this. We could do better than this and it drives somebody into their basement or their garage and they might be in there for a year or 10 years and then they emerge and they say, I've got it, I've got the answer. And it's fueled by their imagination and their drive and their passion. And so part of Ephesians is what, you know what, if you let your imagination be renewed in the, and, and living out the triumph of God, what would you do? What would you do and what does it look like? And for each one of us, it's going to be a little bit different. The other part of it is that as a church, 
we're called to live out the triumph of God. And the second half of Ephesians especially is all about the life of the church. It's all about the life of the church and being knit together as believers. And one of the most important things about the life of the church that Paul talks about in Ephesians is that we now act as the means by which God uh, wages war in the world against evil. So to back up a little bit, in the Old and New Testaments, there's this pattern where, um, where God would defend himself directly like he would in the old testament god would come in and win victories you know through israel but he was this sense of god really came in and stood up for himself you know he came in and he he waged war against those who would oppose him he would triumph over evil you see that through the cross where god himself directly won the victory and in that case only god could do it only god could win that victory but the incredible thing is not Earlier in Ephesians, if you read closely, you pick up on this concept of the church and Christ are one. The church and Christ are one. And it's this incredibly deep theological concept of where the church and Christ are so one that the church now is the body of Christ on the earth. And as such, the church now wages war, the spiritual warfare in the world against the powers and authorities. Just as Christ fought the powers and authorities whenever he was on earth, so now the church does that. And if that sounds really like this, like, wow, that sounds really difficult, Paul's already given us some hints in Ephesians about, about how it's actually a war that's winnable. And the first is because Christ has been raised from the dead and seated above all of those powers and authorities. And hopefully you start to see how that prayer at the start of Ephesians just shapes everything in this letter where that power that raised him from the dead is now for us. Paul prays directly that it comes and fills us. That power to overcome. And then also, um, Paul talks about how there's different gifts that are given to the church. Gifts to help the church directly to win in this spiritual struggle. Gifts to help the church to win and to overcome. The, the renewed mind, this whole concept of how we see ourselves differently. We see ourselves from a heavenly perspective. We begin to use our imaginations to see how the triumph of God would happen in the world. These are keys that Paul um, talks about in the letter of Ephesians and this drama of Ephesians to help us to see our place. But Paul really talks about the church as um, the place where the triumph of God is lived out. The church, we don't have... There's just not space in this series to think about the church really deeply and just even what the church is at kind of the level of just like theological understanding, what the church is in the world. But just to mention, just in passing almost, but the church is that temple of God that Paul talks about in Ephesians. It is the place in the world where the triumph of God is seen most clearly. The church is um, people being brought together and knit together in community to live out the triumph of God. And that happens across every area and should happen across every area of life and of our society and our culture. But it's the place what Paul talks about as being where the triumph of God happens, where the victory of Christ is seen most clearly in our individual hearts and minds, but also um, as a group. And I think that often... You know, just because of our culture is wired this way, where we often think individually. We often think individually, but Paul in the second half of Ephesians especially, 
really throughout the whole letter, but really in the second half of Ephesians, is saying, corporately, as a church, this is the message. It's not just for you individually, but corporately as a church. And Paul starts to talk about different ways that as a church, we can live out differently in our society, and we could live out differently in our world. He gives um, some really clear examples from his day. He talks about um, the relationship between a husband and wife. He talks about the relationship between um, parents and children. And he talks about the relationship between masters and slaves from his own culture, speaking about his own day. And he talks about the triumph of God being this triumph that comes in and turns the values that were expected in the society on its head. He talks about how, you know, um, husbands and wives, there should be this mutual respect and submission. And that was completely different than what the expected standards of his day were. He talked about how, you know, um, there was supposed to be this element of um, correction in the life of a parent and a child, but also this measure of don't overcorrect your child so that they hate you, so that they rebel against you. And that was completely different than what would happen in the culture of his day, where it was completely expected that fathers could essentially do whatever they wanted to their children as they raised them. And, it, and, and Paul begins to take some of the truth of what the gospel is and apply it to those social and very practical situations in his world. And in the same way, he sets a pattern for us where it's like, what does the triumph of God look like in the relationships that you have with other people and in how you see your society and how you see your world? And so for some of us, it'll be in, you know, coming against the, the, uh, the powers themselves in different ways. And I think that's one thing that Paul makes very clear is our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and authorities. And you see that at the very, very end of Ephesians. And we'll, we'll get to the armor of God in just, in just one moment, because that's kind of the sum of the whole letter. But Paul talks about how, you know, there's different, there's different uh, ways that we come against the powers and authorities. And for each of us, that'll look different. For some of us, we'll, as we live our lives in the triumph of God, we'll want to come against you know, the influence of the powers and the authorities in the area of business or the area of politics or the area of healthcare or the area of education or the area of what it is in, to, to live a, a home life and the area of family. But for each of us, that's going to look a little different depending on what God calls us into. But the idea is that where there's oppression and injustice and exploitation and where the powers of darkness seem to be ruling and having their influence, that instead we come in with the influence of God and the victory of Christ. And often that looks different than we expect. We, we talked about this last week where Paul said, I'm a prisoner. You know, I'm in prison here and that's okay because that's when the triumph of God, when I'm weak, that's when the triumph of God is most strong. And often when we come to come against the influence of the powers and authorities, we come in in a way that is very different than you might expect. It's not triumphalistic. It's not coming in and, and celebrating and being over the top and just coming in with this attitude of, you know, just, just triumphal spirit. But you come in like Christ did with the spirit of, of one who comes to serve in humility and one who um, comes in with grace and love and serves. And so for each of us, that's going to look different depending on where we live out our lives. But as you cl- closely read Ephesians, you see the pattern of Christ modeled in Paul, talked about as a way for the Ephesians and for us to live. And so finally, this comes together in the, um, this, the, the passage we know really well, the armor of God passage, where you put on the, you know, all those parts 
of the armor. And I think mostly because, if you, especially if you've been raised in the church in Sunday school, we think about this as, you know, this is for me. This is for me individually. I put on the armor. I put on, you know, all of those pieces. And, you know, you kind of maybe did the little cutouts, you know, and you stuck them on, you know, a, a sheet of paper and you learn about the armor of God. That, that's, that's great. But the only thing is with Ephesians is it was written to the church. And so what Paul is saying is church put on the armor of God. Church, you need the armor of God. As a group, Ephesian church, you need to put on the armor of God. You need to put on all of those pieces. Church, you need to know how to use the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith. Church, you need to know what it is to put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. You need to know what it is to wear the helmet of salvation. And so it goes beyond just the individual lives that we have. But it's a corporate message. It's a corporate calling where as a church, we know what it is to live out the triumph of God. And so kind of as I finish today in the series, that's the call for us is, yes, individually, you know, have your mind renewed, discern the will of God for your life. Think about, use your imagination. How would I live out the triumph of God? What are the gifts that he's given me? How can I live this out? But then think too, how can I help the church put on the armor of God? How can I help the church be equipped to live out this triumph of God? How can I help the church be all that it's supposed to be? How can I help the church to really to grow into maturity of the fullness of Christ? And when you read at the end of Ephesians 3, you see that Paul talks about the church as the way in which the wisdom of this world is combated by the triumph of God. And so whether you have a high opinion of church or a low opinion of church, the reality is that all that God has worked at, all that he has done, has built up to this reality of the church and the world. That is where his victory is being won, and that is where the battle front is. And so as you think about church, it's an encouragement to you to think about how can I contribute to helping the church grow? In my own life, how can I strengthen the church? How can I see the church grow up into fullness? How can I help the church put on the armor of God and come against the influence of evil in this world and in that way play my part in living out this drama of the triumph of God in the world? So let's pray as we finish this morning. So Father, we just thank you so much for the fact that you are a God who has triumphed, who has won a great victory, the greatest victory over sin, death, and hell. And we praise you that you have exalted Christ to the highest place of authority over every name, over every power and authority. And God, we pray that you would guide each one of us into knowing how to live the triumph of God, how to live out your triumph in our lives and in our society. God, would you allow us to have minds that are renewed, to follow after you and to imagine and to dream together how we can make a difference in the world for you. God, would you help us to know what gifts you have given us so that we may live out in the strength and the power that you have given us, this triumph of God. And Father, would you help knit us together in unity as a church and build us up to accomplish the purposes you have for your church in this world. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Graham. That was good.